So we're continuing on speaking of the design of the atonement in our doctrine, Doctrines of Grace series. So we, we ended up last week, we had left off with the question, what exactly was the atonement designed to do? Anything that is made, created, designed has a purpose. Has a reason that the one who created it made it to do a certain thing. So the atonement, the work of the triune God, must have a purpose. <clears throat> we be, we get excuse me. We began exploring three possible answers. You remember that um, when we when we asked what's the, the atonement designed to to do. Um, these are the options that we end up with. You know, is the, the atonement is really not an actual atonement. It's only a possible atonement. In other words, it is um, God makes the atonement possible and it's there for us to take it or reject it as we will. So our, our free will which is, um, in this case, would be uh, uh, actual free will, not contingent free will. We would be operating completely independent from God uh, or anything else. Sometimes this is called libertarian free will. We're not in, we can make a decision, this idea is we can make a decision without being influenced at all by anything. That our decision can be completely separate from uh, anything else in our life. Second question uh, is, was this, was the atonement an actual atonement as opposed to um, a, a possible atonement? And the third was this actual atonement for all people at all times, no matter what. And as you recall, we attached names to these. This would, number one, was the Arminian view. Number two is the Reform view. And number three is the Universal view. And I mentioned how the, the, the Christian church, what we might call the Catholic church, rejects number three. Historically. Now, when I use the term Catholic, the Catholic Church, and I use it purposefully at this point because we, that's okay, babies cry. We're not going to worry about that. When you read commentaries, when you read theological books, you'll come across this term the Catholic Church. I have heard people who have heard lectures or read textbooks and have come across this term and it caused them to turn towards the Church of Rome. Because if the early church is talking about the Catholic Church, let's try and pay attention to the lecture, forget about the babies. The baby's gone. There's no more, no more distraction, right? Okay, Catholic 
merely means the universal church. That's why we have some letters, some epistles in our New Testament that are called the Catholic epistles. They are universal letters to the church at large. So let that not confuse you. Many of you already know this, but it just bears uh, repeating. So if, if the church, universal, the Catholic church, has completely rejected historically um, universalism, why is that, we must ask? I think it's important to think about this. Because, as you remember, the fellow we talked about, Athanasius, how he stated that he wished or had hoped that all would be saved, but he knows that is not the case. Now we may, and probably most of us in our hearts feel that way. We, we do not, if we understand eschatology in, in, in the sense of what happens at the end of life, what happens at judgment, what happens to the wicked, it's, it would be very hard-hearted to wish people into hell or to, or to think, well, he deserves hell. She deserves hell. Now, there are exceptions to that that we may be familiar with or in history there may be exceptions, certain persons that we, we say, well, they certainly deserve hell. But um, so if, if we have this desire that everyone, if possible, everyone would be saved, does that mean that we are, can we be more merciful than God? Are we extending more mercy than God to the reprobate in this, in our hope for their sin? How do we, how do we understand this? There are undoubtedly difficult questions that we come across when we think about these things and we read God's word. But the answer to that is no, we, we cannot be more merciful than God. And why is that? Why can we not be more merciful than God or more anything than God? Brendan, I think you had your hand up first. Can you ex can you expand that out a little bit? That's that's a very true statement, and that's that's kind of what I'm looking for. But flesh it out. Well, let's go. Evan had his hand up. Evan, then Doug. Infinite versus finite. Yeah. Okay. God is infinite. Infinite. Let's when we when we answer, let's pretend we're talking to our friends that do not know theology like you all know theology. Because I want to I, you know, I I have this make sense to the average person, not just, not just you know, the Reformed brethren. Leonard. Well, for one reason is that as, as individual, as human beings, uh, our mind and our thoughts are only 
within the sphere of our, of, of our lives and the lives of people who we know. We don't know even our own heart. And so, you know, and we, we, can, we can say, oh, you know, uh, 10 years ago, this was great. And 10 years later, we look at it and say, oh, boy, I made a horrible decision because of the fact that our own minds and our own thoughts are fallen. So, you know, and with that same thought, how can we, how can we make a, uh, a decision or, or a judgment about someone else's salvation or where they are going to, uh, to be in heaven or not, when we don't even know even from our own selves where we stand. So we have to look to one who's infinite, who, who made us, who knows everything about us, who knows the very self of, of our body, very good. knows our thoughts, even okay. when we think them. So, so God's mercifulness is, is pure and total. Ours is not because it's flawed by our, our very nature. We're beautiful. Doug? We're mutable, basically what he's saying. The theological term. I'm your next door neighbor. I mutable that yeah. so that means I'm mute? Right. I can't right. talk. We change our mind. I know that's not true because I've heard something, y'all. <laughs> no, we change our minds. Okay. You know, we're we will go as the wind blows. And, and uh that is our human nature and what what we Whatever is fanciful today may not be tomorrow. Whoever we like today, tomorrow we may not like. And we may decide to kick them out of heaven because we thought they were worthy of it at one time, but no longer are now. And that's why I'm not in charge. Very good. Linda. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, all the divine attributes that God has, he has them in totality and perfection. So... He, even though he has passed on these abilities for us to be compassionate and kind and, you know, loving, it's all uh, on a, first of all, obviously a minor scale, less, less, less uh, complete, but also it's all tainted with sin. So any, any mercy or whatever that we extend, there's some bit of ourselves in it, like you know, this is my opinion. This is my feeling. This is what I think, and it's all, and which is all has some amount of sin affecting that. So we can't do any of that perfectly. Very good. All of those together um, gave me a very full answer. And if I was questioning you about, you know, this topic, then I think that uh, that that was a very uh, well stated uh, from all of you, so I appreciate that. Yes. So, <clears throat> we know, we'll learn, if we do not know already, that God's word reveals to us that universal salvation is simply not a fact. So we'll start this morning with uh, scripture that points that out to us. Let's look at Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 17 through 23. I'm going to read it. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. Here Paul is, uh, is writing to the, to, to the believers in Rome, and he quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures here. He's going to quote from Exodus chapter 9. Paul writes, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You notice that in the last clause in that excerpt, prepared beforehand. Now this speaks to our first two options in atonement, that, that God has, has prepared um, certain vessels of mercy, vessels that, what does a vessel do? A vessel contains something, doesn't it? God's, these vessels, these certain vessels will have God's mercy poured into them. The others, the vessels of wrath, what then do they have poured into them? God's wrath, right? And what does Paul say about what these vessels are made from? They're made from the same lump of clay. They come from the same place. They're identical. Identical except for one thing. The mercy, yes, very true. Yes, what God intends to use them for, right? So the purpose of design, very good. So in this, we could just point to this and say, well, this clearly teaches that not all people will be saved. And here's the marvelous thing about um, the Bible that God has given us, though, is that in almost every case that I could think of, and maybe there's one out there that I'm not aware of, um, in every case where we have certain doctrine, it does not stand on one passage alone. There are many passages that, that support it. But even if we, let's say there is, there is something that's just supported in one place, but, and supported clearly, where there's, you know, there's no real argument um, that it, of what it says. There's no uh, possible problem with interpretation or understanding. If there was just one passage, and God says it, but we don't find it anyplace else, does that mean anything less, that what God said in this instance is less important? No, but, but God in his, in his wisdom and his grace towards us, he makes these things clear by stating them, by having them stated and restated by the human authors through his divine inspiration. Often though we as sinners, as, as, as fallen creatures, um, do not see what is clearly taught. We'll see, we often see what we want to see. It's like those pictures that you see um, on the internet where 
You, you look at it and you see something, and then the person who posted it says, well, squint your eyes a little bit. And you squint your eyes, they're like, oh my goodness, look at that. Something, something you know, um, popped out of there that, that I didn't see. So let's look at a couple other passages that I think will be helpful for us. Um, Matthew 26, you can turn there if you like. I'm going to read the passage to you. Uh, Matthew 26, um, 24 and 25. Here, in this passage, Jesus says some things about Judas Iscariot, the, uh, the betrayer, the traitor, the one false follower in the inner circle. And what Jesus says, I think, clearly shows that Judas... Iscariot does not partake of salvation, that he is not a recipient of salvation. So thus disproving universalism. So in this passage, the Lord says to his, his inner band, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So what what does the Lord Jesus mean by his first statement here? The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What, What does that entail? There, there are many parts to it. There, you could say many different things. Who wants to take a take a shot at that? Anybody? Okay, let's start off. Let's break it down a little bit. Who is the Son of Man? Who is Jesus referring to when he says the Son of Man? Himself. Himself, Himself right? So in the Gospels, we see this is one of Jesus' favorite self-referential expressions or talking about himself. This is how he refers to himself. What exactly does that mean, though? What would it mean in the context spoken by a first-century Jew in Judea or in in Galilee when he refers to the Son of Man? Doug? He's he's referring to Old Testament passages. He's going back to prophets and saying... You know the Old Testament because this is what, what he's talking about hasn't been written. This is recorded later. So he's writing the New Testament as he speaks. He's only referring to the Old Testament passages. As the Son of Man goes, as you know, these you know, you fill in the blank. They know what he's talking about. It's yes. it's it's common knowledge. Right. Yes. It's a it's a messianic passage. He's re- primarily referring to Daniel chapter seven. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, um, our Lord, he kind of takes this phrase and he puts it, like Doug's pointing out, he puts it in its proper context. There's other places in the prophetic books of the Old Testament where son of man just means a human being. But in Daniel 7, we see the, the heavenly court. We see the ancient of days as Daniel is, is inspired to write, takes the throne, and one who is like the Son of Man comes 
and all authority is given to him. This is what, this is what as, as Doug says, this is what the Lord's talking about. He's referring to himself in a messianic sense. And he goes as it is written of him. Jesus repeats this idea later in the chapter in verses uh, 54 and 56. This is at the time of his arrest in the garden. And as he's, been, as he's being arrested, and some of his disciples are fighting back, and Simon Peter takes out his sword, and the Lord tells him, no, don't do that, put it away. You know, if I, if I was going to resist these guys, there would be, you know, about 190,000 angels w would appear to destroy this small guard. He says um, in verse 4, how should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. So the, the arrest and what's to happen um, is to fulfill the scriptures. And then in 56, the Lord says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Okay, well, Master, uh, you can stick around and be uh, and fulfill the prophecies, <laughs> but we're going to hoof it out of here. And, and they take off into the night. <clears throat> and after he talks about this, he's talking about the, the, the messianic fulfillment that's about to occur. He says, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Now, we don't use the term woe very often, do we? Um, and the, but the meaning of it is very deep. It's connected, in Scripture, it's connected to divine judgment. When wo a woe is spoken, it's like you have incurred the divine wrath of Almighty God. So that is very woeful. He goes on to say, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let's look at John's Gospel. Chapter 17, verse 2 in John. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 12, not verse 2. I can't read my microscopic uh, handwritten note there. 1712, while I was with you, the Lord says, I kept them in your name. He's praying to the Father here. I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, this is part of the eternal plan. It's not like there's a, there's a betrayer in the midst unknown to the Lord, unknown to the, the triune God. No, this is part of what has been planned. And it would have been better if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Now notice the term that he uses for the Lord here. He calls him Rabbi or Teacher. Um, and in verse 22, just before this, we read how the other disciples are calling 
the Lord Jesus master. So I think we can see something here that there's a difference in um, perspective from Judas as compared to the other disciples, which brings to mind, I would say, how many in the, in the liberal theological camp tried to paint and still, still somewhat try to, to tell uh, about Jesus, that he is a good teacher, he is a good moral man, but that's it, he's not divine. But woe be to him who does that. And the Lord says to him, to Judas, you have said so, which is basically a, an ancient Hebrew idiom for you have just admitted it. What you said is true. You're the one who stated it, basically. And then what happens? We know from the other gospel accounts, specifically John, that then Satan enters into, into Judas and immediately, according to John, Judas goes out into the night, which John, his, his writing and his, is so beautiful and poetic that he's painting a picture here of this man's dark heart matching the time of the day, that it's nighttime. The one with the dark heart goes out into the dark night and commits his dark deed. So here's the thing that some people grapple with. And even though we may be completely comfortable with this in our minds, because we have a very high view of God and Christ and their sovereignty and of the word of God, but when we deal with others that do not have such a view, questions invariably can arise. Like, well then, how is Judas responsible? If this was ordained, you showed me these passages, friend, that, that this was part of the plan. And if God caused this man Judas Iscariot to be born, and this was his destiny, that he was to do this, then how could your God hold this man responsible for this? He made him do it. So then, is it right that he be punished? That's a good question, isn't it? Really, when we think about it. That's something that, that, that perhaps you yourself have grappled with at one time. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's something you've had to talk to other people about that's very hard to understand. We, we must realize that nowhere in Scripture does predestination and divine prophecy cancel out human responsibility. That human responsibility remains. Look at Matthew 25, 46. Verse 46.
Is everybody there? You're probably there ahead of me. This is at the end of the parable that the Lord tells about um, the, 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 the mighty king who has people come to him who, uh, who plead that they have been faithful, loyal subjects of his and have done what he's commanded them. But, but yet, they have not. They've not been what they say. And those who are the false subjects, the false believers, if we put it in Christian context, the Lord says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How do we explain, if, if, if a person claims universalism, and there are many in our day and age that do, recall when we talked about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, both ideas, theological ideas that were declared heresies by the church in the fifth century, which when we looked at them, we recognized that this is how many so-called Christians believe today. They, they are heretical, really, in their belief, and I'm not disparaging them, I'm just saying what the church has said about these people who think that good moral conduct gets you to heaven or that you just build the bridge halfway across the, ch the chasm of eternity and, um, or God builds it halfway and then we have to build the, the rest of it but we prepare the ground beforehand. The church has long dismissed that but we see many in the church today building these false doctrines and are professing them and even teaching them in some of our seminaries. So this idea of universalism, those that teach it, how, do, how would you explain what the Lord says in Matthew 25, 46? What possibly could the Lord Jesus mean when he talks about those people, actual people, People, you know, a parable stands for something in real life. It's not just, you know, something that's just completely made up that doesn't connect with our real world. It's a, it's a means of teaching, right? So there are people like this, is what the Lord's saying. He says they will go into eternal punishment. If everybody is saved, how could that possibly be? Is the Lord Jesus, Christian, yes. I think it goes back to what we were speaking about uh, God and Jews. Uh, I think it's safer ground to say that God allowed Jews, not that he made them. Because we, we learn in other passages that God can be tempted by people. Um, and this is what Judas probably would have done anyway. God just did not intervene. So, Okay. Christian is suggesting, from, if I'm understanding you correctly here, and correct me if I'm not, that God allows Judas to do what Judas will do. 
So would you say then that, what if Judas decided not to do what he did? Then, then how would scripture be fulfilled? Can I let you think about it and go to something? I'm sorry. It probably couldn't be fulfilled unless God had ordained that way in his word from the foundation from the beginning. Okay. Brother Leonard. I think I, you know, I, I, in fact, I, I totally agree with what you know, was said. Uh, uh, we have to look at the garden and what the Lord told Adam. Adam is a federal head of all mankind. So with the privilege of being that comes responsibility. And God told him that if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die. And uh, and once he did that, the whole human race was poisoned with sin. Yeah. Right? And it says that God's were open, was poisoned with sin. Well, from that point, everyone is filled is filled with sin. And 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 when you yeah, compare that to Romans chapter one, where it talks about that when they knew not, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. So, so God gave them up. He gives them up to their passions. Everyone has their own sinful desires, which we run to because of our very sinful nature. When the Holy Spirit lets lets us go our path, He hardens us, not by Him uh, physically hardening us, just by letting the clay sit in the sun. The clay hardens itself. And that's what we do. When the Holy Spirit, he's the one who moistens us. He's the one who gives us life. So in this case with Judas, Jesus didn't do anything but just let Judas run his course. Okay. I, I would add, if I can, Christ told Judas what you must do. Must do. Not what you're being made. What you must do. Do quickly. So it seems like this is entirely Judas's will. But let's not forget he sold out to another god. And he has to obey his will. Now, it gets interesting because Satan didn't really want Christ to go to the cross, but he was probably trying to obtain someone else by making Jesus. I saw a hand over, over here. Someone else have something? I'm sorry, I was talking over you. backfired on Satan. Okay, yes. Yeah, okay. So, this kind of puts us in the area of elect and non-elect, I, I would say. So from what we've seen in this passage, what happens at the table that night, is Judas Iscariot amongst God's elect? No, we would say he is not. In which case, that explains what Christian and Leonard are speaking of, that they, that Judas is fallen. He is, continues to be reprobate. He's wicked. He's in the same condition that each of us were in, no matter our background, no matter how we were raised, before we were regenerated by the triune God and, and came to Christ in a salvific way, in a way that brought us salvation. Judas remains an enemy of God. He hates God, just as we hated God. Now, we may not have conspired to have an innocent man executed, 
and there's all sorts of writings as to what was going on in Judas's mind. There's all these psychoanalytical wastes of time. I'll, I'll just be <laughs> honest about it. It's like we we don't know, and I think this is one of the areas where it's really best just to 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 say I don't know and not try. Well, it could be this, could be that. You know, there's there's many. Especially in in the most more recent years, that try to excuse Judas's behavior, they psychologically um, take apart what he's doing and try to show that this this traitor, who is called the son of perdition, who is called a devil by our Lord, who of him, it is said, it would be better if he was not born. There are people who suggest that what he was doing was trying to fulfill Christ's mission, that he was giving Jesus an opportunity. Now, I've heard some really fantastic, you know, make your head spin arguments from defense attorneys in court. And that ranks amongst one of the best. <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe you could convince a jury or give enough doubt where you wouldn't get a, 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 a vote for a guilty from, from 12 people good and true on a jury of, of Judas's peers. But in any event, um, we are responsible for our actions, aren't we? That's, that, that's the bottom line, that that's not an excuse. And, and we, we could get into, get into it deeper, um, but I, I really think we should move on. I think, I think we have a, a good understanding. And you know what? It's perfectly okay to say, you know, friend, you've asked me a very good question. And that's a very deep question. And I don't really have, I don't really have the, the ability to explain it to you fully. But... <coughs> I trust in the Bible. I trust in what God's word says. And this is what God's word says. And then share scripture with them. And how powerful is scripture? It is much more powerful than our logical arguments, than our stellar reasoning, than our fancy wordsmithing as we explain things. I'm not denigrating this. I'm not denigrating those amongst the brethren that have the ability to argue points logically and to lay them out. That, that helps many people think through the process. But if you're doing that, what I would suggest to you is first ask yourself a question. The person you are engaging in conversation with, are they interested in hearing what you have to say? Are they truly looking for an explanation? Or are they merely engaging in an argument with you? As you're, just, as you're explaining this, are they thinking how they're going to counter it? In which case, what do you owe them? You don't owe them anything. But if you have someone who genuinely wants to know, and maybe you can't tell the difference, so we give them the benefit of the doubt. If they genuinely want to know, then we should be able to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ. And it could be very simple. It could be what the Lord has done for you. 
and what you find in God's Word. That, brothers and sisters, is very impactful. I think back on when I was rejecting true Christianity, when I was running from the, 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 the true God of the Bible, thinking that I already knew God. I think about the people who talked to me in just a very frank, simple way. And I didn't think I was listening to them. But I think about each and every one of those people now and how God used them. And I'm sure each of you have similar experiences when you rejected the word. But people talk to you out of care and love, not arguing. I, you know, I, I'm sure I had many of arguments because I was kind of an argumentative person. Um, I don't remember those arguments. They didn't really have an impact on me. I walked away from them thinking either I won the argument, yes, or I didn't do so well, I got to bone up on, I got to be better next time to defeat my opponent. But just a simple sharing of the gospel, and that's the power uh, of the gospel, as, as I'm sure many of us have experienced. So, let's see where we are at. Our last example. Jesus gives this well-known parable of Lazarus and the rich man in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Think about if universalism is a fact, if everybody is saved. When Jesus says the poor man, who is Lazarus, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, this is where he was comforted. This is in what the, what the ancient Jews referred to as Sheol. Sheol was divided into two parts. There was Abraham, what they referred to as Abraham's bosom, where the righteous went. And then there was a place of, of uh, fire and punishment where the wicked went. So <clears throat> he's, he's comforted. He's in Abraham's bosom, as some translations say. The rich man also died. You remember the parable where Lazarus just was a beggar who, who wanted the scraps off the rich man's table, and the rich man didn't give Lazarus a second thought. Well, the, the, the rich man dies also, and is buried, and is in Hades. Now, that's the Greek term our Lord's using, which means the same as Sheol. It's the underworld, the place of the dead. And he's in torment. Lazarus looks up, lifts up his eyes and sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man experiences something other than universal salvation, doesn't he? Now, this is, the, this is a difficulty some people have, is that, 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 that they'll say, well, it's just a story that was told. It was a parable, right? Story. And as I said, parables are, are ways to teach. They teach a truth. Does it make sense to teach a truth via a parable if what you're using to illustrate it is all false? No, I, uh, I don't think it makes any sense at all. Otherwise, the Lord would say at the end of this, 
But none of that's really true. This isn't going to happen. This, this, everybody goes to Abraham's side. Then what is the point in this? Is mercy something that is owed to anyone? No. We're not owed mercy by God. What is owed? Is there anything that is owed to everyone? Okay, we've earned condemnation. Very good. How about justice? I would, I would argue that justice is owed to everyone. That gives us two options, doesn't it? Justice or mercy. Which would you rather have? Out of justice comes condemnation, which we've earned. So we will be judged either with Christ as our sacrificial atonement or we will be judged by our own actions. So out of that judgment, depending on which occurs, we have condemnation. None of us will stand before God in righteousness or we will be judged righteous because Christ stands in front of us. We, we enjoy righteousness through him only because of his perfect life and his atoning death. And with that, um, we will close. And you'll have a 10-minute break. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the salvation you have brought to us. We give thanks for the atonement that you uh, lay out the plan of for us to see and, and understand in, in your word, Father. We give thanks for the many passages that you have presented for us to learn from. Father, bless this, this worship service at 11 a.m. Bless Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike as they come forward and preach and, and present the music for us to praise you by. We give thanks for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.